I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams. I'm here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Good, thanks, mate. How are you? Great. We're both really pumped for this one. We've got a special guest with us uh, for this episode. It's the Daily Telegraph's Nick Campton. How are you, Nick? I'm good. I'm good. No pressure, are you? No, like we're big fans of your work. You're a rising star of rugby league journalism. No, you really fine. burst onto the scene. Uh, we're we're here to talk about North Sydney tonight, but before we get into the episode proper, we, we thought we'd uh, you know introduce ourselves to you and and you to our listeners, anyone who's not familiar. So let, let's start with the start. What is your rugby league story? Oh, my rugby league story. I guess it's a pretty typical one. Um, it's sort of been my life for as long as I could remember, but I realised pretty early on that I wasn't very good at it. Like I was a real trier and all that, so I was never going to be a player or anything like that. But um, Riding was always a passion of mine and um, something that always um, I kind of took to a little bit. So it always seemed to me the best thing to do would be to combine them. So I've wanted to be a sports journalist probably since I was about 13 or 14. And probably about five years ago, I started at the telly and mainly doing production stuff, but a bit of writing and that when I, when I could. And then probably about six weeks ago, I got the call up and I'm on the, the staff at the paper full time now. That's so, awesome. Congrats. Yeah. So it's been um, been a whirlwind few weeks, but I'm enjoying it. So. Yeah, yeah. Tough climate to get a, a full-time job in, in, in journalism oh, in, yeah, in this period. <laughs> when, you, when you started at uni, they all tell you, you know, this is a terrible industry to get into. Half of you will drop out of it. The other half that stay in, none of you will ever get jobs, <laughs> stuff like that. So anytime it's, it's tough or I have a bad day or something goes the wrong way, I always say, well, you know, could be worse. You could be digging ditches, <laughs> you know. <laughs> now, am I correct that you went to St. Greg's? I did, yeah, I did. I'm from Camden, which is maybe 15 minutes from, from Campbelltown. So up to St. Greg's, I was in the same year as James Tedesco and I was there when Chris Lawrence was there and Shandor Earl and Jack DeBellin and Jack Stockwell and... Alex McKinnon and a bunch of other guys. That's part of the reason that I knew I was never going to make it as a player because, yeah. like, I'd go down for tryouts and, like, oh, wow, Jack DeBellin's six foot ten and ripped to shit and we're only 15. <laughs> this is great, you know. Because I, I went to uh, Christian Brothers Lewisham, which is, like, a minor rugby league school. Yeah. You know, we produced the odd first grader. Um, but, but, like, rugby league was such a big part of of the school culture uh, I can imagine that would be tenfold at a school like St. Gregory's. Oh, yeah, it was a massive, it was a massive deal. And and that's when I say rugby league's been my life, that's sort of where it kind of all started for me. You know, like it's just, you know, you're up there and everything's about, you know, the team the team you're on and the training that you've got on. And we're going to Blacktown this week and we got to beat them. We hate Blacktown. And then we're going to Fairfield next week and we got to beat them because, God, we hate them. And then you sort of get to the, the older years where you're playing uh, grade footy and all that, but everyone's sort of part of the squad and the the first grade team becomes so important to you and your life and how you grow up and sort of making that transition into adulthood and I always really liked how they um they probably they can't now because of COVID and all that but all the students go to games as well whenever they can and they all do singing and chanting and all that sort of stuff so it's probably never going to be quite like it was like the sports high schools have really come up I think Christian Brothers Lewisham would have been one of the schools that sort of felt the pinch but Mm. Starting to come to St. Greg's now as well, so they're not probably going to have as many first graders or as many great sides as they used to. But you know, it's a really proud history, and I was really proud to be a part of it. Mm. Have you met Andrew Voss, uh, Nick? I haven't met him, but I've spoken to him a few times on the phone um, for yarns I've done. Yeah, well, like um, I don't think there's anyone in the world that loves uh, schoolboy football more than him. There is not. I did a story with him a few weeks ago about his best ever schoolboy team. Yeah, and I called him up and sort of explained it to him, and I said, "Look, what I want to do is." Um, you know, you've been calling schoolboy footy longer than anyone, so we want to do a, a best ever 13. He said, I don't want to do a best ever 13, I want to do a best ever 17, and it can only be based on what they did as schoolboys. And he said, <laughs> I'll go back I'll go back tonight to my office because I've got the notes from every schoolboy game I've ever called 
and I'll put something together and send it to you in the morning. And I was just like, Vossi, that's unbelievable. <laughs> like it was exactly it was exactly what I wanted from the great men. I, I saw that article and and two words will be a nice segue to the next thing I, I wanted to ask you about. Royston Lightning. Oh mate. He, he <laughs> One was of the greats. He was when when I was at school, I don't did you hear about him as a schoolboy, Andy? I did, yeah. I don't know if maybe like my school played against Arendale in a Commonwealth Bank Cup or something. But I remember this one year, everyone was talking about Royston Lightning. It was just, it was all you all you heard about. Yeah, it's and- it's, it's it's like that sometimes at the schoolboy level. Like sometimes a, a prospect comes through who is just streets ahead of everyone else, and they take on all this almost like this mythic sort of quality. You know what I mean? And Royston Lightning was one of those. I think Owen Craigie would have been one a couple of years before that. Those guys are always very special. Kevin McGuinness was one for me. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, and Royston, of course, went on to the Raiders, and you're a Raiders man, am I correct in saying that? Very correct, yeah. Andy's a Raiders man here. We're so. everywhere. We're <laughs> everywhere, I'm telling you. I was so happy to learn that. I really was. I mean, uh, after we become friendly on Twitter, to learn you're a Raiders man warmed the heart. <laughs> <laughs> so where did that come from for you? I don't actually know. I've got a couple of relatives who sort of take credit for it. They reckon they got me jerseys when I was a little kid or whatever, but I don't remember a time I didn't go for the Raiders, but... I'm also young enough that I don't really remember the glory years. Like the first seasons I remember are ninety seven, ninety eight. So mm, good lord. Until last year it was a bit of a it was a bit it was a bit of a tough slog. So it was that beautiful Aussie male jersey that got you hooked, <laughs> was oh, it? Yeah, bo- bottle green, like it's my colour, you know. Bottle green and, and phone zone and all of that. That's me. <laughs> Imagine if you were a graphic designer and that was in your portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> graphic design is my passion. <laughs> So you're you're a bit younger than Andy and I uh, then. So presumably you don't really have a living memory of Super League. Um, what what are your earliest memories of that as a concept or that as an event in the game's history? Well, um, it's I, it, it's one of those things where I think I have a lot of false memories about it, but just because I've read and consumed so much of the history stuff because that's just the way it sort of went. When I started getting into footy around that same time, I was like, well, now I've got to find out everything that's ever happened in rugby league ever. Mm. So I just sort of went back as, as far as I could and, and as in depth as I could and all that. And the, the big thing that's always kind of captured my imagination about Super League is it was such a short period, but it's still, you can still see the effects of it in the game today, not just in, in uh, big things like where the teams are and who's actually in the competition, but also in things like the, the 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 culture of the game, how we talk about expansion, how we talk about the game's traditional areas, how we talk about what we want the game to be and, and how we want people to talk about it, it's all still directly impacted by those three years of, of, of Super League. So that's something that's always really captured my imagination about it. Oh Yeah, I guess that was where it all started for Andy and I, just the fact that we're still like living in the legacy of Super League a quarter century later. Yeah, absolutely. Like I wrote a I wrote a column about this last year, and it was um, around the time the the conversation around expanding or having a second team in Brisbane had, had had come up again. And the whole premise sort of was the the language that we use to talk about these things is directly impacted by Super League because I, I sort of think that's a time when half the game tried to leave the traditional stuff behind, and half the game tried to hang on to it for for grim death, and it nearly destroyed the entire sport. And it was a bit of a minor miracle it was ever able to get stitched back together. So as a result, the clubs that survived because they hung on their traditional stuff will never, ever let that stuff go again. You know what I mean? Like the game almost turned its back on suburban grounds and Sunday arvos at the footy and community and, and, and looking after the juniors and sitting on the hill and things like that. And now they will never let those things go, you know? Mm. Sorry if that's getting a bit conceptual no, or no, whatever, no, no, but it's, no. yeah, it's just something I think about a lot. And, and I mean, the reason you're here is is the article you wrote about the Bears, which, how good was it, Andy? I mean, I got to read it again for the preparation for this. It's probably the fifth time I've read it. It's it's actually a masterpiece. <laughs> um, uh, it's hard to say to your face and basically blow you on air, but it really is. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free. Feel free, brother. No, it, it was just, it captured everything you could possibly want to say about that club and that era. We've bigged it up before. We've said to anyone who wants us to do some history stuff on the Bears, you don't need us, just go and read this article. <laughs> uh, so so I, I thought, you know, we're doing these case studies in our series off-season, so we'll get you in and talk about the Bears in the 90s. Before we get to it, I just want to talk or ask you a few questions about the actual uh, process of getting this piece together. So 
Was this something that you pitched to the telly? Well, no. I've always um, I've always had a real soft spot for the Bears. Like, like I think everybody has, and I always thought it was it's a terrible thing that happened to them and, and their supporters. What actually happened was is um, me and a few mates of mine were up at North Sydney Oval for a New South Wales Cup game, and it just happened to be the Bears' old boys' day. So we went down to the, the Percy afterwards, and we were having a couple of beers, and one of my mates who was with me was a Bears fan. And we spotted Mark Soden just across the bar with a couple of the boys, and he was my mate's favourite player. So I said, oh, I should go up and chat to him. So we started talking to him. He was just rattling off yarns. It was a great afternoon. And at one point I said to my mate, I said, someone should do a story on this. And he goes, you should do a story on this, dickhead. And I was like, absolutely <laughs> should. So the way sort of my job was then um, creating content, and that was uh, one of my roles but not my main role. So it was more something that I just kind of got the ball rolling on a little bit, like doing a – bit of research and trying to line up interviews and all that just to see if I could really pull something together. And then it was kind of something that I was working on always more in my spare time than anything else, because we like to sort of roll out these big history projects in the off season when they don't get cluttered by the news cycle. So I sort of had a goal in mind that once the season was finished, I'd roll it out. And from there, it was just a matter of lining up the interviews and, um, and writing it all down. And that took a while because it's, you know... 25,000 words. Yeah, it's, re- it's, it's, re- it's really long. It's really long. There's like a, a 1,500 to maybe 2,000 word edition that ended up running in the paper. Um, but I knew I wanted the story to be bigger than that. And once I realized that, it kind of just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm the sort of person that like, I, I always think if the story's good enough, there's no such thing as too long, especially with, with footy stuff. And if it's good enough, people will read it to the end. And You're on the right podcast. Then. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> um, and I know a lot of people didn't make it to the end, but a lot of people did. So that was really great. And hearing you guys sort of say how much you liked it is really, you know, really, really great ears to say. I think it's something that's really been missing from rugby league media is long-form journalism and this is a brilliant example of it and you know I, I hope it's, it's the impetus to see more and more of it uh, you did not as lengthy but I, I love the titans piece you had earlier in the year as well mm. so uh, have, have you got a few more ideas in mind about things you'll be trying to get out for the off season oh yeah i've, I've always got ideas always got ideas it's a bit harder now because i'm a bit more caught up in the general news cycle of it and i think that's the reason that it can be difficult for pieces at this length to kind of get out there as often because you know you guys know what rugby league's like. There's always, always something happening. And the minute you think there isn't, like someone gets arrested or you know, <laughs> something, something, something crazy happens. So it can be hard to find the time. But I, I love doing those history yarns and, and those longer ones. And one of the things that was really good for me during the layoff was being able to do those history pieces, like that, like that one on the Titans, for example. It reminds me of the old 70s and 80s style journalism where like uh, like the Playboy interviews with John Lennon and when the uh, journalists were going to live with the, a band for a year and do a story and it had, had that feel to it. And I'm always complaining about modern journalism, but that was just, yeah, it was beautiful, man. Oh, mate, that's that's really kind of you to say. And, and, and those sort of older pieces from the 70s and 80s in like um, Sports Illustrated or Inside Sport or Esquire mm. or even going back to like the GQ pieces in the 1950s that like Gay Elise is doing with guys like Floyd Patterson and that. Those are the things that, like if I could write one thing that's half as good as some of those, I'll retire happy, mm. you know what I mean? But those those are the things that I'm always trying to look at and emulate with this with this longer stuff. Yeah, I will keep it up. It's great. Just about your writing, like, how did you start off with that? Was that like, you know, just interesting creative writing and when you went from there or? Uh, it's just, I, I I couldn't even tell you, Andy. It's just something that I've always been, I don't want to pump my tires, but I've always been pretty good at it. And then once I sort of finished school, I was like, well, I better turn this towards the thing I love the most, which is which is footy. So I think I, I wrote my first ever footy article in like 2011 for rleague.com. For, mm. If you guys, you guys remember that, they used no. to take submissions. It was... Yeah, yeah. I don't think it exists anymore. It was about um, Jared Mullen and how he was always doomed to fail because he could never live up to Andrew Johns and they wanted him to be, to be Andrew Johns. And I wrote it and it was probably terrible, but I really liked doing it. And I thought, well, this is it now, you know. <laughs> awesome. So you mentioned that you have a soft spot for the Bears and, and everyone else does. It, it's their, I mean, it's it's direct a direct quote from your article, but the, the tag of lovable losers that they'd had for decades and decades to see them rise into this force in the 90s, and your piece starts in the 80s as that team was coming together. Uh, I wonder if you have an idea of, was it just kind of lucky happenstance? Was there a change in administration or or something that was the impetus for the team coming together? Or was it just kind of luck to get blokes like Flo and, and the like 
coming at the same time. I know they they changed up their junior recruitment sort of in the in the mid eighties, and Flo's the only one that kind of predates that. And he's a local boy; like it wouldn't have matter when he came along, he was always going to be a bear. But they changed up their recruitment a little bit in the in that time, and and that's when they brought down Dave Fairley from the Central Coast, and they brought down. Billy Moore from Queensland and Gary Larson and 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 those are kind of the four that uh, that really start things off, and then I think um, a coach who probably didn't go on to have the success at the club that he probably should have is someone like Steve Martin, and I think Steve Martin plays a really big role in um, in getting those young boys one to the club and and two sort of getting them into first grade and helping the Bears sort of shed that lovable loser mentality because I think that that like that was that was a real thing and I think. There was a little bit of an attitude around the club of like you know where they lost games or they hit on hard times. It's like, well, we're the Bears. This just happens to us. We don't win premierships. It's just not part of who we are. So, I think those those changes in recruitment, sort of casting a wider net than just their own junior base and Martin. I'd I'd say those are the two factors that really that really sort of change things. It's funny that so many of those players are like of a type. Like, there's a real like heart to a lot of those players, like when you think of Flo or Gary Larson, Billy Moore, it seems like it was a, a group of players that were just like always going to gel and always going to click. Oh, there's definitely a lot of similarities. Um, and one of my favorite parts of doing this piece was sort of getting to know them even just a little bit. Like Billy Moore, the way you see him on the field, just like incredibly passionate all the time. He's just like that when you talk to him. You know what I mean? He's just extremely fired up about everything at all times, and it's really, really infectious. So it's not surprising that he sort of that it sort of attracted other personalities like that, or that they were able to gel together as well as they did. Mm. Yeah, a friend of mine um, was telling me about it, like a close friend of mine I grew up with, and he had a corporate weekend at a golf resort, and Billy Moore was like the guest of honor, and he reckons he's the best bloke ever. Like he expected like, football to be there begrudgingly, and and just doing his little speech or whatever, but he, he got on the drink with him and was telling stories and played golf. And he, he was just one of the guys. And like, um, it just made me love him even more. Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's, that's the impression I got from him too. He's just a, a really, a really, really genuine fella. And, and it's the same thing. It's the same thing with Flo. Like everyone knows how much Flo loves the bears and mm. that, but he's was just, um, yeah, they all just seem like very genuine, very into the club. And I just, I found that really appealing. Anyone who listens to our show will know how much we love Flo. Um, you know, we've always had like such a respect for him and, and the way, you, you know, he's yeah. keeps fighting for the bears. Like after all these years, I just, I loved his quote in your article when he went to, uh, um, watch the bears in 1982 when they kind of, uh, you know, made the semis and that was a, a massive deal for the bears. And he, he thought they were destined for success and he wanted to be a part of it. Like only Flo could like <laughs> look at this team and the, the, these guys, it, it's going to happen. Yeah, he's, um, he's a, I think he's a pretty remarkable character, Flo, because he, as you say, he sort of is a North Sydney man to the very, very end. Um, and even though that success that he wanted in when, that he wanted when he saw him in 82, it probably never came the way that he would have hoped. He's never, he's never let it... Uh, Denty's spirit for the club even even now one one of my favorite um little bits in the article itself was is right at the end where I'm sort of talking about you know the bears trying to get back into the the comp or whatever and and Flo pretty much says it's it's nice to have the dream but it's probably not realistic at this point but what keeps him going is keeping the club alive for um for the juniors up there giving them like a, a rugby league program they can be proud of uh keeping the history of the club alive because he's extremely proud of that and it's it's just a really um, it's all it's an almost innocent love for the club, you know yeah. what I mean? Even though even though he got hurt a lot when mm. they when they couldn't uh, take the final step, and he got hurt because they asked him to leave at the end of '98, which I still can't believe happened. I can't believe North Sydney would ever ever ask Flo to leave. And then he got hurt again when they merged and everything fell apart, and he and they were really on the bones of their ass, and they looked like they could like flat out die, like vanish. Mm. But he's he's never he's never let that stop him. He's never let that dent his his spirit and his love for the club. It's, um, it's, I, I find it pretty admirable. It's amazing. Like so many stops along the way, like he, most people would have given up and yeah. he's, he's still Just there. never ever did. And he like never spat the dummy when he got moved to the forwards in 96. Uh, never spat the dummy when they took the captaincy off him in 94 for Jason Taylor, who'd only just arrived at the club. It was never, ever any of that. It was just always about the team, always about the club, always about what was best for everybody else. You know, it's, uh, it's a real, it's, yeah, he's, he's an admirable figure, I reckon. It makes you wonder how, if it didn't have him there with, with that team first attitude, how these other guys would have progressed. I mean, it's just such an important thing to have these glue guys in the team, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there, there are times sort of in that, that North Sydney run from 91 to, to 97 when it, it, it could have fallen apart. It could have gone bad. Like uh, they bring in Jason Taylor to play halfback in 93. Mark Soden had been halfback for two years and he was a, a very strong sort of voice in the team, like a, a, a real leader for them. But he, he, he took it on the chin and he moved to hooker and everything stayed okay. And it's the same when um, Billy Moore, this is something I found out researching in the, in the story, Billy Moore had actually signed to leave to go to Manly at the end of 91. Because uh, he worked with Graham Lowe in the Origin series and just sort of loved how he operated, and his relationship with Steve Martin probably wasn't the best at the time, so he signed to go to Manly and to leave. Ended up backflipping, coming back, but the Bears like welcomed him back with open arms. It's just little things like that, little things that could have fractured the the, the good run that they had. It never did. It never got to that point. And I, I think Flo's example was a big part of that. I like the the counterpoint though uh, in the article how much Flo learned from Peter Jackson. And like Peter Jackson, everyone said he was like the best bloke ever. Yeah. It, it's not like he was like a mug, but <laughs> he had some lariness to him and, and a bit of flash that maybe wasn't, you know, like the North Sydney way, but it seemed like he just fit right in and, and really made an impact on that team. Well, Flo said Flo said him and him and Jacko were best mates. And yeah. I'm, like, I'm like you, I was, I was a little bit surprised because Jacko sort of has that kind of wild reputation and Flo is just really, really low key, but... The three big recruits that they bring in for ninety in ninety ninety one uh, are Pat Jarvis and and Mario Fennick, and they sort of taught the those young forwards like Larson and Fairley and more. They taught them how to be tough and hard and uncompromising and and all of that. But then Jackson came in and kind of I know it's a cliche, but he kind of taught them how to win. He taught them how to be confident. He taught them how to stand tall and put their chin up and say, you know what, we're not the lovable losers. We're North Sydney. We're going to kick your ass up and down this field today because Peter Jackson just just sort of had that had that swagger about him and. From the very first time that I met um, Sodes and, and was talking to him, just talking to him, the way that he spoke about Peter Jackson and, and the impact that he had on Jackson had on the club, even though he was only there for a short time, it was it was really touching. And he, he got a little bit emotional when I was interviewing him about it, and all the boys did. And it was it's a tragedy what happened to him, but it just shows what a vibrant character he was. And, and Jarvis and Fennick were, were both very important, particularly Pat Jarvis, and Pat Jarvis was particularly important for Billy Moore and Gary Larson. But I really don't think the impact of Jackson can be can be overstated. And in that ninety one team, they're very tough and hard and uncompromising. But Jackson is the creator. Jackson's the one that 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 uh, really provides the magic. And if you watch those semi finals in ninety one, the first semi final that they win in thirty nine years, Peter Jackson's the best player on the field. You know, he's an incredibly important part of Norse history. It's a funny thing. My, my memories of Jacko on the field, like just one of those players where the class just exudes from him. And I've got fond memories of him on the midday show as well. It used to crack me up as a kid. But, <laughs> but um, I only remember Mario Fennick at North. I don't remember him at South very much. And at North, he was just such a competitor. And to go from hooker to prop and then you know be that tough, he was a major signing. Doesn't that feel impossible now? A guy starting his career as a hooker and then just switching straight over and being a prop. Because when you watch Mario playing for North, you think, how the hell was mm. this bloke ever, yeah. ever a dummy yeah. half? But I, I think you're right, Andy. I think like his passion, his intensity was really important. And even though he never won a grand final with South or even been to a grand final or anything like that, he always struck me as a player who was um, who was like a, a leader and and a winner just through that intensity. Mm. You know, so I, I'm with you. I, I, like the importance of those three really can't be overstated for for what came later. Even though I think Jarvis um, hung him up at the end of '92 and. 91 was really Jackson's last season as a top-class player. Injuries injuries, and illness sort of took the last couple of years out of him. But Phoenix stuck around until 94 when the next iteration of the team sort of comes around. And, yeah, I, 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 thought, it was, I thought it was a bit sad that Phoenix sort of got turned into a punchline a little bit after he retired I, with the Falcon and the bleeding yeah. and all the stuff on the footy show. It was all that, and we all had a good laugh about it at the time. But he was a, he was a great, great player. That's... And it's happened again with Nathan Hindmarsh now. It has, yeah, like, that's where, a really good, he's that's just a, really a good joke. This bloke who played played three hundred games, and in you know, and like Mario Fennick, exactly the same. Like he was a great player, went toe to toe with Benny Elias in the eighties. In another era, he we're talking about a bloke who played you know ten fifteen Origins maybe. Mm. Uh, played such a key role in in that North team. Like one of my um, when I was doing the research for the Super League series. In that '94 season, just him on the sideline in those Canberra semi-finals, just willing the team to victory with everything he had. Everyone was just marveling at him, just like 
not having an ounce left at the end of those games. Mm. You probably read him. There's some great stories at the time from that final series where he pretty much says, this is my last yeah. chance to win a premiership because he's going up to captain the Crushers next year. And I think everyone knew that, <laughs> everyone knew that wasn't going to work from the start. And he just, he just wanted it so, so, so bad. And like my heart breaks for the Bears in all the times they sort of had the bad luck. But 94, the one I feel most sorry for is mm. Mario. It's funny though, Mario... Um, you know, Jacko like leaves Canberra, they win a grand final. Leaves Brisbane, they win a grand final the next year. You know, like Mario, you know, doesn't win the premiership. Even Jason Taylor, like going all the way with Parramatta in two thousand and one, and then somehow they don't win that grand final. Like it seems like North's the other connective tissue between this team is it was a team of nearly men. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like. I don't believe in curses. I don't know if anyone really does, but the evidence just keeps piling up. You know what I mean? Because it didn't just get them at North. It got so many of them through their, through their whole careers. Even, like you say, with Taylor and Butner, who have the old reunited Norths combo in 2001, and it's the best team ever, and they're breaking records and all that, and they get to the big one, and it's just, we all know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> it, all just, it all just fell apart on them. One of my favorite things in your article was the way you went into detail about those preliminary finals. Um, 94 is the one I remember most vividly. I was at that game. Uh, one of the, the great like footballing memories of my childhood is being there watching that live. Um, I'm, I'm a Dragons fan, so 96. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, Probably got differing views diff- on that diff- one. Differing views. 97, it just, in hindsight, it just feels like Newcastle was such the team of destiny that I kind of like had forgotten that, you know, that North had gotten so close in that prelim. So can you talk about maybe the differences between those prelims and yeah, sure. when you thought they might have had the best chance? Well, I think 90, 91, they were a, a good team and a tough team, but probably a little a little bit basic and a little bit one-dimensional. And that shows up in the, the major semi they play against Penrith. Penrith were the minor premiers. The winner would go straight through to the grand final, and it's it's a, a tough, hard, uncompromising game. Um, the only points come through sort of like deflected kicks and intercepts and all that. And in the end, what sinks Norths is Daryl Halligan, the best kicker of his age, who retired as the top point scorer of all time, kicks one from five. I ran the numbers. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but I think he only missed four goals in a game twice for the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just an appalling slice of luck, and they go down by two points, and the game was so physical and so tough, they just got steamrolled by Canberra the next week. But I don't know if they would have had the, the gas to down Penrith in the grand final. 94, um, yeah, I don't have to sell you, Andy, on how good the 94 Raiders were. Like They're, a, yeah. they're an, extreme, an extremely special team. And, but that North Sydney side in that prelim really kind of turned it into their sort of game. They stopped Canberra's sort of free-flowing ways and all that. And it's, it's tough and it's gritty and it's close which is exactly what they want. And then they have the infamous send-off where John Lomax had already been sent off for Canberra. And then Gary Larson, who was never sent off before or since, spear tackles, I think, Brett Hetherington, and then that's it. So all of a sudden it's 12 on 12. A Norths player, I think Dave Hall, gets injured at one point. So it's 12 on 11. And that free-flowing Canberra team with Ricky Stewart just giving them incredible width across the park almost turned into a sevens game. It turned into the exact sort of game Canberra wanted. 96, I think, is the best team the best Norths team. They brought in Ben Ike and Brett Dallas and Michael Butner that year. They moved uh, Butner into the halves, Flo into the back row. Larson to prop it sort of really opened things up for them, kind of diversified their approach. Um, Mike, you'll remember in the reports from the time, everyone was talking about it as being a two-team competition with Manly and Brisbane. But Norths went up to Brisbane the first week of the semis and knocked them off in one of the, the great lost finals performances of the entire decade. And they play Saints in the prelim and... They should, like they, I'm, I'm sorry, Mike, they should have beaten Saints. They were better than Saints that year, but they just weren't better on the day. You're not besmirching Nick Zisti and Dean Raper, never, are you? Never, never. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think part of the problem in, in 96 was they just kept doing the things they'd done all year and they thought that'd be, that would be enough. And an underrated thing is uh, Noel Goldthorpe, who had a fantastic final series that year, was Jason Taylor's understudy when they were both at West, so he knew his game extremely well. They were able to nullify it a little bit. And... I think the weight of history got to got to Norths a little bit because at that point there was not a single person alive that had won a premiership with North Sydney. The last member of their premiership side died in 1989. Frank Hyde was the only living man that had captained them in a grand final. Like it was it was an incredible amount of history and pressure and 
expectation and all that. And the Dragons went in not just with the freedom of being underdogs, but also if they did lose and they didn't make the grand final, it was okay. They were St. George. They had the 11 premierships. They were in the grand final two years, three years before. They would surely make grand finals again in the future. Like there was the, the, the history and the identity of the club just wasn't riding on it in that way. So they were able to play with a lot more freedom and they had a great start and got them on the ambush and North's never really recovered. 97, we all remember it that way about the Knights being this sort of messianic team, but it just as easily could have been North Sydney because if they win that prelim, they probably get the grand final against Manly. They get that North side rivalry. And who knows, maybe if the Bears win that game, it could have the same impact on the wider rugby league community like it did with Newcastle. Mm. But again, in luck that would only happen to the Bears, Jason Taylor, who is up there with Halligan as the best kickers of the era, sprays them all over the place, can't can't kick one to save himself. He misses penalties from in front at the start. Uh, he misses conversions, like not from wide out, but from pretty close to it at the end. And it just feels like it was destined never to happen, never to happen for them, you know, because it's just four incredibly rough ways to lose. Like one time, that's, you know, whatever, bad luck happens. Two times, all right, that's really bad luck. Three or more times, it's just like, you ran over a cat on the way to, I ran over a black cat on the way to the mm. ground or something like that, you know? So there's so many what ifs in, in the Bears story. You know, this tiny, you know, moment in a game could have changed everything. This one decision. Super League is the big one in so many ways. The, the funny thing is, it all broke so perfectly for the Bears. They were an on field force at the perfect time. They missed out the first time at, at around April Fools, but the second bite of the cherry late in '95, when you know the players, or it was it was about June, July when the players were yeah, kind of, yeah, around that time. Um, Super League was suddenly desperate for another Sydney team, particularly one on the north side of Sydney. It was all there for them. It was right there. Like it would have given them um, sort of a, a, a presence on that north side. They could have gone head to head with Manly, who were one of like the ARL clubs, and. One thing that I really got caught thinking about, and I'm interested to hear what you fellas think, what would it have been like if Super League had landed a foundation club? Mm, like, yeah. what, how do you think that would have sort of impacted the almost the, the propaganda battle of getting one of those old world sort of teams to, to, to come over and say, well, no, this team, this 1908 team can be part of the glittering future? To be honest, like when I was thinking about this today, I think the foundation club is such a big reason why the you know the players like I, I feel like they f- would have felt this pressure like this outsized importance of foundation club like what that means a foundation club going to super league you know it's it's almost like i i can't imagine it happening but also from the super league side you can't be spruiking all this american stuff and then have the team with the tree in the ground you know like it's but i mean that's what they did anyway you know they were played one game at the SFS in 1997, you know? I think just getting the colours and the jersey and the the team, they would have worked out the stadium stuff later. They would have moved them down to the SFS and and just have them play there or whatever. And there was a point that um, Sodes made when I was interviewing about it. He sort of said all all the teams that went to Super League, all the established teams that went to Super League, they're all still around. Mm. They all all made it, you know what I mean? A team like Cronulla who were financially just – I don't want to say incompetent, but really struggled financially for a long, long time. They went to Super League and it sort of saved them yeah. a little bit. It sort of gave them an extra 20 years of of, of time. And who knows, if, if, if say, Cronulla had stayed in the show and Norths had gone, maybe Norths are still around today or maybe they would have pulled the trigger and moved them up to the Central Coast or something like that. But I'm with you. It, it really did seem like all the pieces were, were coming together for them to make that move. And Soden in particular in your piece seems, uh, I don't know, if regretful – is is the right word, but he seems the most like was there for us, yeah. you know. Like. Yeah, very much so. Very, 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 very much so. Um, the the thing that stood out to me with that is how so many of the players um just accepted that the club would choose the best thing for them and not the best thing for the for the club itself. If you know what I mean, I think the reason that that Norths end up going to the RL is the players all want to stick together. I think there was a really strong connection between between a lot of them like that and they they probably didn't leverage their position as as, as a club they could have maybe gotten some guarantees in the NRL or or something like that I, I think they some of the board members just kind of went along to what to go along like they're like well you know the ARL won't sell us out but mm. I think the most telling quote is Soden uh, when he's talking about the conversation he had with Flo and he said look at the ARL it's Arthurson it's Packer it's Manly 
We've been like we have been trying to get away from Manly forever, and this is the chance that we can leave them behind. Like we don't have to, we don't have to be second to them anymore. Like we can be number one. We can be number one up here. That that. No, I'm talking about my heart breaking a lot on this, oh, but it breaks my heart when I think of it because I think he's exactly right. Like you, you look at those guys at the top of the RL, they're all manly guys. And I know they're all big ARL guys too, but at their core, yeah. they are Seagulls dudes, you know, mm. and that makes a difference. The fact that he was saying that in 95 and the way it broke a few years yeah. later, it is brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And the other part that broke me, that broke my heart was when he said, if Flo had said, let's go, we all would have went, you know what I mean? And for... I think Flo approaches it in a really healthy way. He says, you know, shit happens and there's nothing you can do about it. But if he'd made that decision, if he'd said, you know what, we're going to do this, we're going to go, I have no doubt the Bears would be around in first grade today in some form. I just can't see Flo, he's he's such a traditionalist, I just can't see him going to Super League under any circumstances, really. I think loyalty is very important to him more than being a traditionalist, Andy. You know what I mean? And I think yeah. um, I, I, I sometimes I wonder if um, on that great episode you guys did about the 94 kangaroo tour and you guys say that Flo is one of the big success stories because he's like, and every time there's a gap in the team, he just puts the hand up and says, yep, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. So I wonder if if because he was so sort of steeped in in that traditionalism of the, the tour and all the, 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 the mythos that sort of comes attached to that, I, I wonder if, if that sort of played a part in his decision. He was like, no, like these are the important things mm. in rugby league and 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 this is what we need to we need to value. I don't know. I'm, I'm playing. I, I think I'm that, playing armchair psychologist no, I, there. I mean, but... I, I think there's probably something to that. Like he went on that tour, not expecting to get a game, ends up being a crucial part of that team. Like I can see a guy like Flo, not like he wouldn't easily cast that aside in yeah, his absolutely. mind. You know, to go to this new thing. Yeah, agree. But just a bit on Mark Soden, like in, in your article, Nick, it warmed my heart to see, like I always talk about him being the first of the new hookers, you know, going into dummy half as a halfback and, and running fast out of the dummy half. But Peter Mulholland, who everyone in rugby league loves, true gentleman of the game, it was him that suggested it. Yeah, that was that was something that really surprised me. So three of the key moves that they make for 94 is they sign Jason Taylor, they um, debut Matt Sears and Mark Soden moves to hooker and Mulholland's behind all three. Um, Taylor was the Australian schoolboys captain at, oh, sorry, he was the captain of St. Greg's in the late eighties when, um, Peter Mulholland was there turning them into a schoolboy dynasty and all of that. Um, and Taylor was looking to get out of West and Mulholland tried to get, tried to get him over to the Western Reds, tried really, really hard. And that's something I think about a lot too. Mm -hmm. What have we gotten him over to Perth? And he said, if you don't want to go to Perth, go to North Sydney because they're, they'll like, you, like you can be, you can be the, 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 the biggest sort of the big man on campus at that club. Sears is another St. Greg's boy. He was on the 93, 92 team, I think, that nearly won the schoolboy title. One game off the bench, 93, then 94, got into fullback and just exploded. He's 94. He's rookie of the year season. Like, he was my second favorite player. I had his poster on my wall. He was a Norwich rising star. And um, in your article there, he was described as a player who was so fast, he burnt up the grass behind him as he ran. And... I just thought about that today. Like he was like a early Billy Slater, same running style with that sort of hunched shoulders and aggressive running style, as opposed to the Brett Mullins was more like the the laid back Michael Johnson running style, Jared Hayne running style. Just Matt Sears was just a beautiful athlete. I think those are two really good comps for Mullins and Sears. But like the way Sears just almost digs at the turf when he's running, really rips it up yeah. behind him. He's um, Searsy the. The big thing for me is he he really hit ninety four like a like a bolt of lightning like they didn't expect him to be the starter at all they brought Ivan Cleary over from Manly for a year he was meant to be the starter at fullback but Sears just had a couple of good trials and got in and and talking to Sears he he um I don't think he was ever a great sort of thinker about the game he kind of just went out there and did it I asked him about when he ran down Brett Mullins and he sort of said oh yeah Mullins got into the clear and got around me and then I turned around and ran and I caught him it was great yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's just one of those guys. It's funny both Sears and Mullins, like neither of them had the career that you would have thought they were both going to have in 94. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder if they'd maybe come along a few years later, things could have been a little bit different because you, know, you look at the way they play their two guys, you could absolutely drop into first grade today. And But yeah, it just it just never really seemed to work out for them. And Sears is one of those ones he sort of lost his way a little bit uh, right towards the end of his, his, his NRL career and Part of that might have been because of, of the way North Sydney splintered or all that, but 94, winning rookie of the year ahead of Joey is something that he should be extremely, extremely mm. proud of. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, as you say, Andy, Skull had the idea of moving Soden from halfback to hooker, and he said, and Soden's told me he said Skull said, "Look, Taylor's coming here. He's playing halfback. They're not moving him. He's on too much money. It's too important." He said, "But Tony Ray is." pretty close to the end. And he goes, with your skill set, I reckon you can turn into a hooker. And I think you're right as well, Andy, that he is one of those first sort of modern running hookers. Like a, a lot of those guys, probably up to maybe 95, 96, were the last of the old school hookers are there. You see them play on tape and you think, man, they'd never they'd mm-hmm. never make it today. But someone like Soden, like the people that followed him in that position, you can trace a really clear line to guys like uh, Damian Cook or Jake Granville who have the skill of halfbacks and that speed off the mark. He, he, he really was one of the first of a type. Uh, but just on Tony Ray briefly, there's a, a great anecdote from that 94 prelim that um, I, I think says a lot. So he'd been deposed by Soden, but, you know, was club captain. And I think it was when David Hall got injured and was running down the tunnel, like Tony Ray stopping him and just going, no, you got to get back out there, you know. So oh, it, it, God. It, how did I not have that? <laughs> 25,000 words. <laughs> and that would have been the best story in it. Thanks, Mike. I'll have nightmares about that. <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry, mate. No, that's, that's <laughs> but it, it it really says a lot about the spirit in that club. And when you think about Super League, they had did they have a single player that went to Super League? Oh, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you. I know Sods had a big offer from Cronulla. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that they might have had a few fringe guys go, but none of the yeah. none of the big names. All which, the big names stayed. Which is quite rare to have the whole team stay together. You know, like um. I mean, even when you think of that Newcastle team, which is the story, Chief driving the bus and all the rest of it, they had, you know, seven or eight blokes and half the juniors who, who went off to Super League. Like, it's a really rare case of, of what Norths did. Firstly, deciding to stick together in the first place, and then when they had the second go at it, having the players meeting, even though they were so dirty on the administration for um, what that they felt that they'd been misled, um they all got together and then as a group decided to stay. Uh, yeah, the um, Jason Taylor spoke a lot about um, the sort of closeness of the playing group and that kind of surprised me a bit because Taylor doesn't, he doesn't sort of strike me as the most um, emotional bloke in the world, supplying to like wax lyrical about how much he loves people. Right? No, that's fine, it's just not everyone's like that. But he spoke quite passionately about how close they were as a group and how that was what stopped them from, from, from splintering and half going to Super League and half staying and maybe having everything end. They said, well, look, we're a great bunch of mates. We've got a chance to win a premiership in whatever competition we're in. Like, let's stick together. Let's let's all go and do this. And again, it's it's almost like Flo, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Maybe if a few of them had gone, the rest would have followed, you know, so. So they did stay. And I was thinking about today, so I'm going to put this to both of you. Is it even possible to make a case that, staying with the ARL was the right thing for the Bears? In a word, no. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to the aftermath of Super League. They stay, the NRL's being pieced together. At that point in time, it seemed like North's future was secure. So, you know, Flo heads on a plane to England. I'm sure he was thinking he was going to be coming back to watch watch his Bears play out of Gosford for, you know, decades to come. Well, that's that's why I, I disagree with Andy because you can make the case that staying with the ARL was the right call because by the end of '97 they they were already talking about moving to the Central Coast and the way it's sort of written in those reports at the time, North Sydney's survival isn't a question; it's assured. There is no doubt in the world that they will go up to the Central Coast and they'll stay there for a million years. They'll be a regional club that'll protect them, and the bare name will live in first grade forever. There were like rumblings sort of at the end of 97 about, you know, a possible merger with Manly, but they are in the reports, they are laughed out. They are like, this is ridiculous. Can you imagine if something like this ever happened? This would be outrageous. <laughs> and then they sort of, they vote to they vote at the end of 97, the members vote and agree to leave at the start of 99. Um, and 98 is meant to be the last season at Bear Park. The last game at Bear Park is a semi-final against Canterbury. It's Flo's last game. They push flow out. I still can't believe that happened. And then 99 starts and it might be the worst year that any club has had in the history of first grade rugby league because, you know, they didn't come last. They didn't lose all their games. But the the, the factors that came together in that season, it's appalling luck, even for the Bears. Even the Bears shouldn't have caught that many bad breaks, you know. The idea was that they'd be at Graham Park in Gosford probably from about around five or around six. 
So for starters, like of the renovations on the stadium got delayed because of torrential rain, and like it was the it was the heaviest rainfall since records were kept, like that sort of torrential rain. So that delayed the renovations of the stadium, and then there were all these sorts of um, construction fuck ups. I can't call them anything else. There was things like they were meant to paint the the roof of the stadium a certain way. They were meant to paint the panels a certain way to waterproof it, and it was uh, you had to do three different layers of paint. They put them on in the wrong order. So they had to send them up to Newcastle to the factory where they came from, sandblast them all off, paint them all again, stuff like that. So what happened was is instead of get moving to Gosford in round four or round five like they were meant to, it just kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And North Sydney Oval wasn't in a state to host them anymore because they thought they were going to leave it forever. So for the first two-thirds of the 99 season, they're playing on the road. They're playing at Suncorp. They're playing at ANZ. They're playing at Parramatta. They're playing anywhere that will have them. And they're getting crowds of they're listed at being about five six thousand. I've seen them on the telly. Like if there's a thousand people, they're they're, they're lucky. They're you know, and with the way the the whole criteria was set up, home crowd numbers and financial viability were two were two really big factors. And it just sunk the bears. And it took them from having an assured certain future to being incredibly uncertain. Because around the same time, there comes out that the club's broke. The club's been bleeding money for years, and I couldn't get any definitive answers as to where all the money went or how it all happened. Um, the articles from the Times sort of say that it was maybe a little bit of financial mismanagement, maybe player salaries sort of shot through the roof a little bit. But they still had um, North City Leagues Club, one of the most profitable leagues clubs in the game. And and uh, Mike Coleman in particular and, and Mike Gibson, who are two great old Bearsmen, they wrote some beautiful columns at the time sort of uh, bemoaning the fact that how could this club be allowed to get to this point where – they go from in six months from having their next thirty years assured, not 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 a question, not a question about what they were going to do, to all of a sudden scrambling around and 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 not being able to go up to Gosford and having to come back to North Sydney Oval essentially to die. Like it's the worst break I've ever seen a footy team cop. It's funny this conversation. I'm getting the same like like just heart wrenching feelings <laughs> as I did reading like your article at, in multiple points. It was like every like, you know, 500 words, you're like, Oh no. <laughs> like, and I'm, oh, I'm sure, really, it'll, it'll turn though. It'll turn, it'll turn the next season. Don't worry about that. But I really love the euphemism. There was maybe a bit of financial mismanagement. I, mean, it's... <laughs> oh, I don't want to, I don't want to get sued. <laughs> There's rugby league. It's definitely financial mismanagement, but uh, how rugby league is it to have shoddy tradesmen determining your future? Like- <laughs> <laughs> Those tradesmen should have had an honesty session. That would have fixed them. <laughs> The other tough part for 99 is is a lot of those players that were so great for him in the 90s are starting to get to the end of their careers. Like Flo's already gone. They brought in Adam Muir and Morrison um, the year before and they brought them in and they were supposed to be kind of the uh, the two shining forwards to lead them, for, to lead them into the future. Uh, they told Soden halfway through 99 that he was free to leave, that Jamie Goddard was going to replace him. Gary Larson got dropped to reserve grade for the first time in I think eight or nine years and nearly retired. David Fairley had to talk him out of it. Billy Moore, um, they told him they didn't want him anymore either, and he just flat out retired at, at 28. You know, mm. he could have had another four years, but he was so heartbroken by the Bears moving him on that he just said, I'm out of here, boys. Billy Moore told me that the uh, the day after the season finished, he just drove straight back to Queensland, didn't stick, didn't stick around another day. That's how mm. early he was, you know, and it's it's a, it's just such a shame that it ended that way for, for nearly all of them, and the, or for all of them, I guess. What, what I don't get is, you know, Soden in the article talks about how you know, he saw it from the other side when he was coming through and, and the old blokes were getting pushed out and now it was happening to them. But who was coming through? No one really. Like, like, I don't understand it. Sides was only about 30. Like I said, Billy Moore was 28. And a lot of them went on to play the next year. Gary Larson played for Parramatta. David Fairley played for the Knights. And, and a few of them played pretty well. Like there wasn't this 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 huge youth movement that was, that was pushing them out. I, I do think part of it as well is um, Peter Louie, who we haven't spoken about at all on this, mm. strangely enough, who's a... Was a, a really good coach for Norths from '93 to '99. Yeah. He announced at the start of '99 that he was going to finish up, which was probably the right call. I think um, a few of the players had maybe gotten a little bit stale and all that, but him hanging on for '99 is another break that if it went another way, maybe things could have been very different. Because maybe if you get a new coach in, new ideas, freshen up the old boys a little bit, maybe maybe they do better on the field, but maybe it revitalizes them a little bit, and maybe it shows the club that. Oh no, it, it's silly to move on Larson and Fairley and Soden and more. They've still got some stuff in the tank, you know. But uh, them's the breaks. Flo says it in the yarn, you know. Shit happens. Just don't <laughs> think about it. <laughs> well, like to me, mate, like the whole Central Coast Bears on the standalone on the Central Coast is the biggest 
Travis did the whole thing. The story repeated most often on this podcast, other than Ricky Stewart not signing my cards, is that I did a Central Coast Bears case study in my uni degree in Newcastle. Now, if, if that stadium was built five years earlier and they, and they had the balls to move, they'd still be there and they'd be a powerhouse. Without a doubt. With, without a doubt. And I, um, I think you guys have mentioned expansion on the show a few times before, and I think the... The horses bolted on the Central yeah. Coast a little bit. Like, I don't think you can start a new team. No. I think it would have to be a relocated team and they'd have to move lock, stock and barrel. Without a doubt. And the only team that really could have done it was the Bears because they, the, the links they had weren't the strongest, but they were there. They were enough. Like, they had guys like Fairley who were always coming down from the Central Coast. I think Dave Hall's from up, there, from up that way as well. And it would have been a, a reasonably successful team from the jump, which would have really helped sort of bind them to the community a little bit. Maybe they get down to North Sydney Oval once or twice a year or whatever. And it's just, it was, it, it seems like such a slam dunk, such a layup. And the the worst part is how quickly it all fell apart. Mm. I, know, I know I mentioned it before, but they literally go from in April saying, we're still going to do this. We're going to play on the Central Coast this year to uh, August. They have their last game with Manly and they're saying, yeah, this is it. This is the shotgun wedding. Like these two psychopath teams yeah. are actually going to do it. They're going to merge. Like the fallout sort of after the season when they kind of, they almost rush into the, the merger. It happens in, it happens incredibly, incredibly quickly. And it's clear from the jump that it's just, it's Manly just sucking them up. It's Manly doing exactly what Mark Soden was talking about back in, back in 95, just sucking up what they can and just backing themselves to ride it out, you know? The prophecy of Mark Soden in your article of the Manly power brokers is just, it's just cruel. I mean, the fan base, I've got a lot of friends out there, but I mean, even they admit that they're insular idiots. Like, <laughs> it was just never going to work. No, never. And th- there are people who, who wrote reports, I won't say their names, but they wrote reports at the time backing it, saying it, it was it was going to work. Like, I just, I can't believe it. Like, it's like cats living with dogs. Like, it's mm. just, how could anyone think that was going to work? So let, let's, I've got a couple of questions on this. So let's put the shoe on the other foot. Let's say the Bears do go to Central Coast the merger still happens because Manly, there's no room for them as a standalone club. I can't see Manly being cast aside so easily. So let's say the merger still happens, but suddenly Norths are in the box seat. They're the senior partner. It's the, the Central Coast Bears, or uh, and maybe it's got some maroon in the jersey. Whatever the breakout, it's Norths are the senior partner in this merger. Do you think that would have worked with you know Manly fans being like the the ones who are disillusioned. I don't think so. I th- I think Manly would have swindled them out of it somehow. Even <laughs> even if Norths were in charge, a couple of years Bozo and then would have would have turned it around. Yeah. Don't worry about that. But I I don't think it ever could have worked. I I think the rivalry was such an important part of um maybe not Manly's as much because they had other things to care about, but like it was an important part of North Sydney's DNA. Paul Kent wrote a column in about 97, I think it was, and they were talking it was talking about North playing Manly. He said, what happens is, is North bring the players up and then they go to Manly and Manly teach them how to hate losing, but the only thing North hate is Manly. Mm. You know, so I, I, mm. I don't think they ever could have worked. I, th- I It would be like merging Souths and, and, the, and the Roosters or, or something like that. There's, there's not a lot of – I found it hard to find like definitive data about the criteria that the NRL set in 99, but from the rough estimates that I could get, if Norths had moved and had been uh, – bumped up the list, the team that would have come into the firing line is Penrith. Penrith were the one that sort of just mm. skated in. And then that makes you think, well, if Penrith's there to merge with, maybe West's merge with them instead of with um, Balmain or maybe Parramatta, who were looking for teams to merge with for some reason, maybe Parramatta suck up Penrith and we have this weird Western Sydney superpower. And then something, I can't remember if it made it into the arm or not, but something that a few of those bears told me about is they – tried to uh, try and organise a merger with Balmain before Balmain went with West. And they thought, well, it's just across the harbour. Like, geographically, we might be able to get it to work. There's not as much animosity there. Maybe we can we can do something like that. But that's something that's always, um, that's always really interested me as well. I can't wait for five years time or whatever when you guys do the episode on on 99 and, and all the all the weird mergers that, that it nearly threw up i hope we get it out before five years the, the pace we're traveling nah, I'll, listen, I'll, I'll wait i'll wait patiently bro well it's funny you mentioned balmain because both north and balmain in the early 90s there there were you know reports that they were considering a move to the central coast and you, you kind of feel if either of them had had the balls to do it back then, you know, so much of it could have been avoided. Yeah, absolutely. The, the other one is um, Melbourne, uh, sorry, 
Balmain playing those three games in, in Melbourne, Melbourne in, in 94. 94. Yeah. Like Melbourne Melbourne Tigers. Yeah. Bang. Yeah. Like that's that seems like yeah. such a such a slam dunk, you know what I mean? Mm. Getting a, mm. a, like an established brand down there, the great jerseys down there, they they have an existing identity and all that. It it it's it's always easy to look back in hindsight and say, "Oh, if only they had the the the, the balls to do it." But like yeah. if if they did, they'd all still be around on their own today, mm. you know? We could literally do different permutations of what could have happened like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all night. <laughs> so we, we probably should move on. Rugby league loves a Band-Aid solution but cannot tear a Band-Aid off. <laughs> that is it. That is that is 100% mm. right. And maybe part of it with North and Balmain is because, well, maybe not Balmain as much, but because North were doing so well in the early to mid-90s, they were like, well, why would we leave? Why would we Leave this place. We're doing. We're doing great here. Like ten years down the line, we'll worry about that in ten years. We're doing. We're doing fine. You know. <laughs> it's, it's a story that doesn't have a happy ending, and so many you know heartbreaking moments along the way. Were you able to feel any like personal like closure or sense of hope or optimism out of the experience of writing it? The bit that gave me a bit of closure was Flo sort of saying that even if the club doesn't come back, that doesn't change what's happened before. Um, and there's still there's still a lot of pride and a, and a lot of love for the club. And just because the club's not in first grade doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. And, and that's something I think is is really powerful, not just for the Bears, but for teams like um, for, I think Newtown's another great mm. example. Just because you're not in the top flight, you know, you're still worth a damn. You still mean something yep. to, to rugby league. Rugby league's not the NRL. It's so much. Mm. It's so much. It's so much bigger than that. You know. And I think the Bears are a great are a great great reminder of that. And I love as well how much um, how the players are all still great mates today, and a few of them say it in the story. When they all get together for their reunion, they never talk about oh, what about ninety one when Halligan missed the kick? What about ninety four? What about this? It's always about the good times, you know what I mean? So, as much as we sort of think oh, you know they didn't win this premiership, it ruined their lives. It was they still look back at it as the best time of their lives, and they still had a lot of a lot of great times. So that's probably the only way that I could approach it without just you know collapsing in a pile of tears because life is futile and sometimes your team is going to go a century without winning a comp without winning a comp and they're going to kicked out and it's never you know what i mean so i've got to say nick like your article gave me some closure on that saga because just reading the love for each other and the camaraderie it just warmed the heart like, like legitimately and like the fact that they had such a good time together made it sort of okay in my mind you know yeah, and those links are still really strong in that team today. A thing that that always really stands out to me when I think about it is um, Matty Sears has had some really tough times in his post-football life, and they sort of started when he was near the end of his career. But um, they got him to North Sydney Old Boys Day last year, and that was a, that was a really big deal to bring him back and have him back in the fold and that. And I know um, Billy Moore and, and Sodes both had their own tough times when they finished footy, and it was a tough gap for them to fill, and, and, and that – camaraderie with their ex-teammates is something that really that really helped them through it you know it's you know not everyone wins premierships but those bonds that are created by those times together you know there's nothing else like it that's the as a fellow who's never seen his team win a premiership (laughs) i've got to assume that those bonds are the best part of footy (laughs) you came close last year but oh oh, we nearly made it we nearly made it i didn't watch or attend the grand final i know what you're talking about Just as we finish, you mentioned some of the positive elements and the fact that your story, the, the genesis of it, is you know watching Norse play in, in the uh, New South Wales Cup. I, I haven't gone to a, a game out there. Have they built something? Like, are they building something similar to you know going to Henson Park and watching the Jets? Yeah, I definitely think so. The the link with the Roosters is good because it gives them a bit of a bit of a red hot side. But um, it might just be because I was I was there on Old Boys Day and it sort of gave it sort of a vibe and an atmosphere that it might it might not have otherwise had. But it, it, it's like going to Henson and seeing the Jets. It, it's as close as you're going to get. And you get all those wonderful things that we talked about, like the fig tree's still there. And you get to sit in the shitty grandstand and you're miles away, but it doesn't matter. It's great anyway. And, and you see old Bears fans who would have been going for the team for 30 years. They're all still getting around. And there's still that late rush from the Percy across the road at kickoff time. And, and Flo's always there buzzing around doing stuff. And there's always a couple of other guys there as well. Jason Taylor went back and coached them last year, which was something that I really liked because I don't know how much of an association he sort of had with the club post-retirement. And he was such an such an important part of sort of their, their, their last few years, their last ever captain scored, their last ever try. So I, if, if, well, you can't now, but when everything gets back to normal, whenever that is, head up there. It's, mm. a, great, it's a great, great day out. Yeah. Well, I, I hope anyone who hasn't read the story will, will take the time to seek it out now because um, you've, 
summed it up so well tonight. So uh, thank you for that. I hope there's a lot more of these long forms coming out over the off season and, and you keep it up because, um, yeah, you, you blew Andy and I away with the quality of the journalism in that piece. I really appreciate it, guys. I do. Thank you so much. Uh, and, yeah, so thank you for joining us uh, and we will speak to you next week.